Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. March 15th, 2020, episode 170. They say it's your birthday. Hello everyone and welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. My name is Kevin England and I hope you're doing well today. It is a quiet Sunday morning and we're smack dab in the middle of March 2020. Given what's going on in the world these days, it seems like a good idea to have a quiet Sunday. If you're like many Americans on this Sunday morning, you've been poking around on the web and looking on TV to see what's going on and stay up with events surrounding the coronavirus. It's been a week of escalation, which has culminated with both Sharon and I getting instructions from our employers to work from home in the coming weeks. We could see this coming, and we did our best to prepare for being sequestered at home for a bit. And I guess we'll hunker down and practice social distancing should we need to go out for any reason. My plan, personally, is to putter around the house today, but it's still a little chilly this morning, so I nuzzled up to a nice breakfast for Sharon and I, and a few cups of coffee. Thinking now is the time to get the podcast recording on the books, in hopes that the sun will peak out later this afternoon. I have a mix of odds and ends prepped for this episode, starting with some thoughts about beekeeping as it relates to the coronavirus, for topic number one. Topic number two is a little commentary on errors that occur, sometimes in producing the show. Then back to the back of the book, roundtables include changing up the plan for warmer days, droning on a recommendation for manned vehicles, keeping with the drone theme, roundtable number three is about culling, roundtable number four coming back to honey is not sugar, or is it? Roundtable number five, something on material science. Number six, one more on the pile, the busy bee feeder. And last but not least, number seven will be a referral to a mead-making podcast by Sergio Mutella. That seems a rather ambitious plan, so perhaps we should get to it. To the local hive report. Local Hive Report, you know, when they talk about good news versus bad news, give me the bad news first. And I guess I'll kick this off with saying that, unfortunately, I lost the polystyrene hive this past week. My assessment of how many bees were in there after it blew off the stand and was sitting upside down open for a couple days was probably not very good. It was a glance. And looking now, I can find out that I've lost far more bees than I thought I did. When I checked on it this past week, I noticed that there were only a handful of bees left on the frame. And not a lot of dead bees on the bottom, which means that's really all they had. My guess is when I peeked in on it, they were all up on the top of the frames looking at what I was looking at. But when they came together, there really wasn't that many bees in there. When I looked, the full content of the hive was probably about a hand-sized colony of bees with a queen with a green dot right in the middle. All week long it was a little too cold and well I shouldn't say that. Never too cold when you have an emergency but I just kept thinking to myself this hive's a dink. 
there's really no way to rescue it. I'm not going to do anything with it. Yet one of these days, I had a warm afternoon. I decided to give it a Hail Mary. I went to the hive next to it. I pulled a frame out with bees and resources, and I put it in next to the queen. The bad news is, went in a couple days later, and everything was gone. They had one cold night, and they just couldn't put it all together. It reminds me over and over again the message that if you have a super small hive, no matter what, it's hard to get them through. Now maybe I could have taken them and put them in an observation hive and put them inside where it was warm and fed them or something, but he really didn't have that at my disposal. And what I ended up doing was taking away a frame of bees from a good hive, and that's the wrong direction. <laughs> so, lesson learned, even I am sentimental about trying to get things through in I should know better. The good news is I checked on the other three hives. They seem to be pretty reasonable. Uh, the one on the far end of the property, it's down there by itself. Um, that one ate through a lot of the food that I gave it, so it must have been hungry. And I gave it some more. So three hives right now in operation be able to make splits of these early in the spring and I think uh, that's pretty much all there is to say about how they're doing. They're still in insulation. I did not take them apart. Although we're getting some warmer days, we're still down in 30s at night, 30 degrees Fahrenheit. It's about zero degrees Celsius, so I'm not ready to open them up. I'm going to wait till the end of March before I start doing any manipulations. Turning to yesterday afternoon, I spent the later part of the afternoon when it was warm pulling out boxes from the garage taking anything that had old comb and cutting it out and just getting organized if it had plastic in it it got set aside it's going to get removed even as i've been trying to cull all the plastic out of my operation i found mm, probably a dozen frames it's hard to believe that all that stuff is in there I went out to the yard and pulled a couple of the dead outs, brought them in, and then started to proceed to cut all the comb out of it. If you're in this exercise, and most people do this during the winter, but I don't have a warm place to work in the winter, so I like to wait till it gets a little bit warmer. You start to amass various tools to try and do it. You can get a box cutter. I like to use a glazer tool, which is a tool that they use for doing windows. I have this metal blade that's a little hook and it's sharp on one side and you can stick it through the wax and go down the sides and go down the bottom. Now of course if they're crimp wire they have little wires. You can get to each wire and move it through. You just have to cut around them. And what I do is I go through and cut all the way along the bottom. Pull the wire out because you could pull it out cut, pull the wire out. Once I get the comb free on the bottom and on the sides, then I pull it out and I separate the wedge that holds the top wires in and I'm able to get the whole wax piece out in one piece. And I just stick that in a pile and it will go in the solar wax melter later. Then I use this scraper and I go through and scrape all the excess wax. And this is where you could probably stop, but for me, 
I take a heat gun and I go through with the heat gun and I melt all the excess wax off of all the edges of the frames. I had a piece of um, or a roll of tape with me and every time I found one of these frames that had a little wiggle, a little loose, the sides were not fastened well, I put a piece of tape on it to remark later to go back and nail it a little bit better to make it stiffer. One of the things that was interesting, and I'm happy I'm doing this this year, is I'm going through all of my equipment, every frame I have. And since I'm going to do a, haha, uh -huh, Bailey Shook, <laughs> goes down smooth. I'm going to do my modified Bailey Shook method. I'm going to go through everything. And what happens here is as I start to collect all these frames that I have, I start to recognize what I knew before that I ordered these over a period of time and ordered them from different manufacturers before I figured out the frame game. I have a bunch of frames that came from Kelly. And I know they're from Kelly because I remember when I ordered them and I built them, they were the, the biggest batch of frames that I bought the second round after getting started. I can identify these frames because the Kelly frames came with big um, the, the head on the nail was really large and when you drove those in on the top bar they sat side by side and they looked like a pair of eyeballs looking at you. That's how I know those are the Kelly frames. Well the interesting thing is they were mixed all over the place in my boxes but now I have six hive deeps and I've been putting all the Kelly frames with the Kelly frames. Then I know at some point I ordered pre-made frames from Brushy Mountain. Those frames, they stapled. So I could pick those out. They had a certain ear configuration and a staple, so I know those are those. And I ordered 10 in a box multiple boxes so I know how many I have I have 30 of those and I'll be able to put them in their own boxes so in the vein of the frame game I'll be able to put like frames with like frames now there's times when I've got nukes and times when I've received different uh, frames that somebody was throwing away and I have a whole bunch of bastards they're just similar but different the key thing is I took out a tape measure and a ruler and I measured each one of those. The good news for me is the Kelly and the Brushy Mountain have the same dimension. And when I ordered my foundation last night, I ordered 175 pieces because I plan to go through all of them and I have that many frames I'm guessing. Maybe I'll have a couple extra after I'm done. They are just short of eight and a half inches. Eight and three-eighths, I think, is what the measurement was. Now, I have some of those frames, and this is where, if you've been a beekeeper for a period of time, you'll recognize these. When you're building frames, that bottom bar, the Kelly and the Brushy had three-quarter inch shims with a groove cut through. They were not two pieces of wood that went down into slots, which left an open groove on the bottom. As I went through all my hives, <laughs> I found those too. I think I probably have 25, I'm sorry, 30 of those. Maybe more, who knows. Where you put the two channels down in the bottom. They take an eight, eight 
and one half inch foundation. I know that because I measured them. And I went back to Kelly's website where I bought them and looked at the foundation where they came from and it recommends eight and a half inch deep. I think I can get away with the eight and three eighths in those. It may not tuck deep down in there, but I also can take some wax and secure them through the bottom. And I think that's what I'm going to do. You know, they sell those tubes that you dip into wax and hold your finger on it, and then you can run a bead of wax. Well, the bad news with those frames that have the gap, the seam on the bottom bar, is when they hang over top of the other frame underneath them, the bees build propolis and the bees build bridge comb. They don't like that gap. So I highly recommend, if you're buying frames, never buy the one with the two bars on the bottom that create a gap. They're awful. I'll never do that again. Now, am I really going to take the time to wax all those? I probably will put those frames aside and use them last because I just don't like them. So I spent time getting through about three boxes yesterday with a heat gun, put a little music on, and away I went. I'm going to spend some time this afternoon doing even more. With what I have going on, I know how many frames I need to build and anticipate that my foundation will come just in time for me to perform my springtime maintenance. So that's what's going on right now. Uh, my plan is wait till next week or maybe the week after, depending on how the weather works out, and collapse those boxes down. The other day I was coming home from work. I went out to our summit offices for Celgene. And on my way through, I was driving past Bob Kloss's house, gave him a call, and just dropped in on him. <laughs> I don't normally do that, but every time I drive down the highway, I kind of think, you know, I'm going to call and see what he's up to. Well, he happened to answer the phone. So I swung over and we sat and chatted for a while. I didn't get a chance to talk to him uh, since he's been back from Malawi, and we just sat and chatted for a little while and, and talked about beekeeping. And one of the things I mentioned to him is I was going to purchase some slatted racks. I'm thinking that if I take a too deep box coming out of winter and they're all in the top and I put them down on the bottom board, I want to put them over a slatted rack. A lot of people suggest that a slatted rack is a waste and doesn't really do anything. I know that one of the things it does do is it makes like this little buffer between the bottom board air coming in from the front entrance and what comes up to the hive. And in early spring, if you can control that temperature a little bit right above the bottom board, chances are the queen will lay all the way to the bottom board, to the bottom of the frame. Now, I say this because I have visually observed when I've made changes. Uh, let me let me slow down and say this properly. I have before taken boxes that were in the top of two deeps and reversed them and put them down on the bottom board. And then subsequently it gets cold and you see that the queen will not lay down to the bottom of the frame. Lay eggs, I'm talking about, not lay down like lay down. I think I want to try putting in a slatted rack and see if that makes a change. I read from Rusty Berlue that she uses them on her hives 
and that's one of the reasons cited in the literature as to why you would want one of these. It's also supposed to relieve swarming in the springtime too by providing a little extra space and other things. Now the one thing about a slatted rack is it has preordained wooden slats that sit underneath every single frame for a 10 frame hive. I've gotten in the habit of running 9 frames in my 10 frame hive and that's not going to work because your gaps between the frames will not line over the gaps in the slotted hive. So going forward when I put these slotted racks in I'm going to have to switch back to a 10 frame configuration which I'm good with. I'm going to be neurotic about cleaning the shoulders off so the frames don't get all tightened up. I'm always pretty good about that anyway. So as it turns out Bob had a couple slatted racks in his stack in his shed that he's never used. Maybe he used them once and he was willing to loan them to me for the experiment. He actually said just take them but I want to see how they work and you know and I'll let him know. And then if they work out really good he's probably going to want them back. <laughs> so well, that's the way it goes. So local hive report just hanging on. It's still to my eyes a little early. I see a lot of people on the web have been through their hives and doing whatever. I wouldn't be doing anything but feeding at this point. It's still too cold. How do I know that? When I look out the front door at the rhododendron, the leaves are curled up tight in the morning. When those leaves are relaxed, and I'm looking out the front door and they're relaxed multiple days, then I know it's time to go in the hives. And also, I've been wearing a winter coat, and some mornings it's so cold I've been putting long under underwear on for going out for my walk. So, I think it's still a little too chilly here in New Jersey. A local hive report. Three hives to go into the season. I think that's what we're going to end up with. There's two full 10 frame hives and one 8 frame hive. The 8 frame hive made it through. I think in the past I said it didn't. I was confused. I get that way sometimes. Yeah, the one hive that's coming through right now is the 8 frame hive. So local hive report. Check. All done. Let's go ahead and move to topic number one. Topic number one, I call this one, get a plan. It is evident in these times to recognize that the world marketplace is in a tenuous state given the impacts of coronavirus. In some places, entire regions and communities have seen such deep and intrusive changes in their daily routine and honestly, it's just hard to put into word the tolls of the lives that are lost. As we grapple with the anticipated spread of the virus around the world, it's only natural to look at the challenges from a point of view close to home. Not to be an alarmist, but I cannot think of any other time when you are considering decisions that could literally be in the life or death realm. I have done my share of theoretical things for emergency management and other realms, but this one, this is one that impacts every person walking the earth. To bring that into light, have you ever known any situation in our lifetime that has resulted in metropolitan areas being locked down? I don't know of anything this impactful medically on a global scale that would make one consider a posture of not going out into public. 
First, China, Singapore, Italy. As I'm recording this, Spain is locked down and the U.S. has started to take pretty severe measures. Like many other large companies, my employer has enforced travel bans. Originally, they had it for trouble places in the world, but now it's an outright ban. Major meetings are canceled, conferences, planning meetings, and whatever else. They don't want large gatherings. This is uh, an example of the most severe handling of things that I've ever seen. And the company delivers almost daily guidance on adjustments because the situation is rapidly evolving in major hubs. Now I'm saying stuff that probably everybody knows, but for posterity I'm recording it for the show. If we look at the situation from the context of the show, local and commercial beekeeping is not exempt from disruption. And reports are surfacing of the possible impacts to the commercial supply of honey in the world. And one only needs to identify that China is recognized as the world's top honey producer. We could use the reports that are coming out of China for beekeepers who are sequestered as a possible sign of things to come for us, given that China beekeepers have been constrained from looking after their bees. If you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, there are articles talking about the impacts of the economy in China, and beekeepers are not allowed to travel around to take care of necessary maintenance. And in some respects, I can only imagine that the businesses, livelihoods, of those beekeepers are in jeopardy and that's terribly sad. Kevin moment. One of the themes of this podcast is beekeepers going together and we should all consider our situations. As an American and especially a beekeeper we often hear of the unthinkable adulteration of honey from world markets and you know it's most commonly attributed to Chinese origin honey. I'm not gonna go whitewash that as I'm sure it happens, but we need to recognize our brethren who operate honest and legitimate businesses over there. And they love their bees just like we do. And they're in pain and anguish and going through things where their hands are tied and this situation is disrupting their operation. It's sad and while I fear that while China is having their troubles, we cannot forget this going on in Italy, South Korea, now Spain, and I think the best we can do, given the situation, is try to learn from what happens in those places and plan. There is one other thing rattling around in my brain. In a very unsympathetic way of thinking, so forgive me for that, pragmatically it has to be said that this event could change the shape of how honey is sourced in the world, at least for a period of time. And questions linger of, will the coronavirus have any lasting effect on the honey supply going forward. End of Kevin moment. For me this coronavirus thing is disconcerting and I could easily see it be the subject of a pandemic story in a fiction book but the scary thing is it's real and it's happening on the world stage. So you know this has a funny tone to it. I'm not fear-mongering. I'm recognizing what's being reported and that this thing is growing and as a responsible person, you should really have a plan in place. Of course, the highest importance is planning for personal health and safety, food, water, shelter, medications, fuel, and all the common things. But to the point of this feature, we cannot forget to prepare for things in our care 
and specifically in this focus RPs. Perhaps this is a bit of a fool's notion, as bees can in fact live in the wild without human intervention. However, I tend to lean on the aspect that they are livestock, and as such we should be taking whatever is necessary to keep them going in the way that we would manage them if there was nothing going on. So case in point, in my area we have a dearth between July and September. You can leave your bees to their own devices, but in my case, I know that I'm going to be feeding around that time because we have a dearth here, and therefore I should be prepared for that. I really hope this thing doesn't last that long, but you just don't know. So prior to having your back against a wall, that's when you should be building a plan. As we get closer to something that may manifest, the harder it is to come by the supplies. And if and when this happens, you will be shut off and you'll have to make do with what you have in reserve. If you think through your management plan for the year, could you do it? Could you execute the things necessary without access to additional materials and supplies? You could start thinking of a possible checklist. Do you have any spare sugar to feed? Do you have any supplies to harvest and bottle honey? Do you have any treatment products if you plan to treat? Is there some management practice you could do now to make your bees more resilient should they be on their own for a while and you have to leave them? Let's say you get sick and you end up in the hospital. Do you have someone who's going to take care of them? Are you in an expansion year? Do you have the necessary equipment to address your growth? You plan to do splits, but you don't have your boxes yet? There's all kinds of things. And will stuff be able to be shipped if the country goes into lockdown, like Spain did this week? Now, each of us has our own situations to consider. And one thing preparedness teaches us is the best time to prepare, as I said before, is prior to the event. Now I would think that if you keep bees away from your home, it might be useful to see if you can communicate with some local official to get permission ahead of time to address the bees' needs. I think you can conceivably get permission to go to a field and feed the bees and not be counted on to do dumb things in time of crisis. You certainly don't want to concern those in charge but that's just me. I think you could probably work that out with your local officials. I mean, that's to an extreme, but in essence, this is what I'm thinking about. How can you help your situation should this thing go into overdrive? These are such dumb things to be considering, but you know, we've already canceled one meeting at Northwest. We had to cancel because the library called off the event. The Chester County Beekeepers Association meeting, not there, supposed to be there yesterday, canceled. At work they canceled Adobe Worldwide Technology Conferences and the other conferences that were supposed to go on for Microsoft, Apple and so on are being held virtually. And not only are our, our offices closed, but my son, who's in Seattle, his office closed before ours. Microsoft, Facebook, Google, they're all closed. So, you know, we also had plans to go to EAS this year. Not sure if that's going to happen. And some of our flights for a spring break vacation are on hiatus right now. So we got to check in to see if we can get a reimbursement or at least do something with those. 
So yeah, there are impacts already. I picture most of my listeners as hobbyists, some small sideliners, but I even know that there's some commercial folks who tune in once in a while. For them, mm, this could be far more impactful, and I wonder if they're considering their contingency plans. You have to think of this. Perhaps a commercial person has hives near you and they're not allowed to travel. Could it be something where they might trust you to look out after one of their out yards during restrictions? I mean, I had a notion to reach out to George Schaefer and suggest to him that if things went to pot, let me know what you need and I'll walk across the field and look in on his colonies. I'm literally close enough to his apiary, apiary that I can walk to them and not cross paths with any humans through the fields. I'm just trying to fuel your food for thought to be prepared. It's the emergency management planning mentality that's ingrained in me from my training. The best thing that could happen at this time is that it's totally overblown and never materializes. Has that happened before? Mm, yeah. <laughs> it was called Y2K. This, however, the coronavirus thing, my spidey sense seems to think it's really going to happen or has a better chance than anything we've ever seen before. So we really should prepare to follow instructions and be smart and get through it. There was an article posted in the news agency Reuters that has been all over the internet about some impacts to China's honey industry as a result of this coronavirus. Look in the show notes for coronavirus stings world top honeymakers in China. Certainly not a fun topic to talk about and I hope you and yours, uh, everything's okay with you and you get through this unscathed and do take a moment to see if there's any plans you need to make. Topic number two, ho, ho, ho. Sometimes I listen to my show and the little voice in my head says, what were you thinking? I try to keep things error free, but like other places that disseminate information and share opinions, sometimes I get it wrong. It takes a lot of time and energy to go back into recordings and fix what is wrong. If I edit things out, it changes the time frames of items in the shows and it's, you know, a large headache. If things are egregious, I bite the bullet and fix large gaffes because I know that the episodes are out there in the back catalog and I would, it would just bother me to leave them out there for posterity. Thankfully, I've not had to do it for a long time and I don't have to do it very frequently. It seems lately, in this flurry of producing shows every weekend, I've been a little more ad hoc and rushed into getting content prepared. But that goes with my 2020 approach to be a bit more agile in producing the show. Catch as catch can, and I'm trying to record these things in nooks and crannies in my schedule where time can be found. Case in point, I'm prepping this very topic that you'll hear on a Wednesday morning prior to going to work since I have about 20 minutes open. What I find is with an agile approach, mistakes are made. Some you could look past, some bother you, and some have to be called out and fixed. I received a note from John Gott with some feedback about the Varroa piece I did recently that surmised that perhaps Varroa is becoming resistant to Epivar. 
He rightfully pointed out that I said not was the manufacturer when in fact it's Vito Pharmaceutical. I know that. I know that all day long, if you know what I mean. Now, this is a rationalization, but when you're talking on the fly, you're bringing things to the forefront through a stream of consciousness, it's almost autopilot in some kind of way. And you somewhat become disconnected with what you're saying because you're trying to formulate real time what comes next. That's your focus. As John points out, which I really appreciated, I say to myself, I said that? <laughs> of course it's Vito Farm. It has always been Vito Farm. In the piece I said Nod, Nod of course makes Formic Pro and Might Away Quick Strips. If you walked up to meet Colt at a show and asked me who makes Apivar, I would tell you it's Vito Farm. <laughs> Why my brain summoned Nod from the depths while I was doing that piece? It, it beats me, and I don't know why it does that sometimes. So for the record, and to clear that up, Vito Pharmaceutical is the maker of Apivar. Always has been, probably always will be. And another example of where did that come from, in the last episode I talked about the medium drone brood frames that I purchased at the show down there in Maryland. I was driving in the car, and had a Ralphie from Christmas story moment when I was listening back to that episode. A football? Football? What's a football? With an unconscious will, my voice squeaked out a football. Crawl back up the slide. No, no, I want an official Red Rider Carbon Action 200 shot range model air rifle. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. <laughs> coming back to the segment from the last episode I was droning on uh, wait that's kind of funny it was I was talking about a drone frame droning on and I blurted out in the description that the thing was yellow yellow I'm thinking to myself as I'm driving down Carson Road yellow I said yellow. The Ralphie came out and said, no, 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 it's green. Green, it's always been green. Drone frames are always green. At least the Pierco ones. They're friggin' neon green. Always have been, never will be anything else but Kelly neon green. Yellow, where the hockey sticks did that come from? And it sometimes shows, as I've been trying to demonstrate, that the mind has its own agenda. It's just the way of the world, I guess. Or at least my mind. Hearing these faux pas makes me take pause. Being type A, I groan at these things. And even though they happen with low frequency, they still really bother me. The solution is listen before launching. As when I do that, I can catch all of the obvious ones. 99% of the time. So I guess I'm going to have to play this by ear. Strike a balance between producing more shows or letting some oops pop up every once in a while. I suppose something good comes of all things. And back to John's feedback. He shared with me, um, 
was discussing in that episode Dean Polk's findings were a little misrepresented. He happened to speak to Dean afterwards, and what Dean showed in his slides were the metabolites of Amitraz and not Amitraz in the wax itself. Now I kind of recall Marianne Fraser saying this would happen in her talks and explaining in her session that once the product degrades over time what is left are the metabolites in some forms. Coming back to the good that became of this, John shared some research being done by the USDA lab in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It's being conducted by Frank Rinkovich summarizing the findings of his work with commercial operators. There they were taking a look at Amitraz in commercial operations. This is what they were working on. Quote, Amitraz resistance was evaluated in commercial beekeeping operations in Louisiana, New York, and South Dakota with a long history of Amitraz use. End quote. I'm going to have a link to the paper. But to cut to the chase, the findings conclude that, quote, the resistance ratios from in vitro amitraz bioassays were correlated to the reduced apivar efficacy, demonstrating bona fide cases of varroa control failures due to Amazon resistance, end quote. The outcome was a recommendation for resistance monitoring protocols. Now, I can't say how that work correlates to our hives in our backyards, as the hives in the study do not have the same backstory as our hives and hobby yards. But it still comes back to the recommendation of common sense. Monitor, treat if indicated, then monitor afterwards to assure it was effective. You know, as always, I feel like John has my back, and that's a good thing. It's nice to know that such a good and trusted beekeeper and the other beekeepers who support this program are providing feedback. And as beekeepers, we all need to have each other's backs. Uh, when beekeepers go together, you know. So as I said, look for a link to the Baton Rouge study hosted at the Journal Plus One with the title, Detection of Amitraz Resistance and Reduced Treatment Efficacy in the Varroa Mite, Varroa Destructor, within commercial beekeeping operations. And before I leave the topic, one more thing. John also shared a paper, which I've seen before, and also bears uh, sharing. Good thing to have in the show notes. I stated that metabolites are in the comb. I need everybody to take that context. What Dean is doing is looking at all chemicals in the hive, and exploring if any of them could lead to some sort of colony effectiveness problems. We know already that certain synergistic effects are impacting bees, and he's looking at fungicides, insecticides, pesticides, but he also has to look at what we, the beekeeper, put inside, and he can't disqualify anything that's in there. There was research done that shows that Amitraz is safe for bees and that no significant residues will be found when used in hives. There was research done by Jeff Pettis on this, and if you want to know more, I'm going to provide a link to a brochure provides information at the Man Lake website with Apivar data. 
It includes references to the studies done that drew the conclusion residue levels left in hives are not harmful to bees. That's actually the Hapavar brochure. When you go and read it, at the bottom of it, it has the data about that, so you can look at it. So in the end, two oopses cleared up and one clarification. Vito Pharmaceutical makes Apovar. Drone boot frames are typically neon lime green. And Dean's slide represented metabolites, not amitraz residues. Thanks, John, for the assist on that. Roundtable number one, call this one Dash. I remarked recently that it's been a warm winter, or so it seems, and this is for new beekeepers to think about, and some of you veterans will get an appreciation of this. How do we like our winters if we have winters? You either want a winter or you want no winter, but the in-between doesn't work very well. What am I talking about? If you think about the way it works and how it plays out, you should not be seeing bees flying in February. That's not good. An occasional cleansing flight day is okay, but we beekeepers should like comparatively warmer winters. I know, I'm probably speaking in riddles. In the feeble way my brain works, I can always summon up a cultural reference. It reminds me of Dash running the little race in The Incredibles, where his parents are in the stands saying, No, 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 not so fast. Slow down. Oh, no, oh, no, faster, faster. Yeah, that's it. Perfect. Third. Perfect. That's perfect. When it's super cold, bad things happen. This is the Goldilocks principle. We want it to be just right. When it's too cold, the bees have to do superhuman feats, super bee feats, to keep things warm. They're expending more energy, and like the comparison to a battery, when they have to generate a lot of heat and consume a lot of stores, if they have the ability to do that, they're just going to wear themselves out. And that's not going to make for a good, strong, healthy colony coming into winter, into spring, I mean. On the other side, you have what we have this year. It's too warm. There's not an occasional flight. They're flying almost every other day, sometimes a couple days in a row. And that's not good because there's nothing out there for them. There's no forage. They're burning energy. They're tattering their wings. Yes, they got some cleansing flights. But it leads to another dynamic that you'll see this time of year. They're hungry. And they could consume more food or they start robbing one another. Because robbing is a natural form of forage, and it, it requires no waggle dance or anything. Just find a hive, and away you go. Food is ready-made. It doesn't have to be dehydrated, fanned, any of that. It's just food. No muss, no fuss. So when we think about winters, too cold, not very good, uses up the bees. Too warm, useless foraging. We want it right in the middle. And I guess the takeaway here is if you see your bees flying in February, you should do what you should do, which is look at management practices and do whatever is required to be operational. We generally tell you put all your food on in the fall 
so you don't have to feed in the spring. But if you see things going on where it's warmer in the spring, and it's been this way the last couple of years that I can recall, then you should really be looking to see whether they need any food. Now, as I look through my hives, I see a lot of stored honey. It's not like they're starving, but it's only early March, mid-March, and the nectar flow, meaning trees blooming, flowers popping, doesn't come till the first week of April and really in our, in April 15th. So we got another month to go and you should just be keeping an eye on it. Food for thought, everybody. Roundtable number two, I call this one droning on. Uh, coming back to a note from Justin Schiffler, something he told me after we recorded episode 166. I don't know whether it was that day or a subsequent conversation that we had. He mentioned to me there was a particular podcast episode that he thought was really interesting. It was from the Beekeeper Confidential podcast, and it was the episode with Julia Mahood. Mandy Shaw interviewed her, and I had a chance to listen to it, and it was really an interesting topic. It was about finding drones with the drone. I know as I say that it sounds confusing, so I'll say it another way. Finding a drone congregation area with a UAV, unmanned aerial device, a drone, thing you fly in the sky. While listening to the piece, I had moments of going back to a Northwest meeting. Uh, Julia was talking about before figuring out how to do the drone thing, she attempted flying weather balloons to go to a drone congregation area. It reminded me of a Northwest meeting, a state meeting where we put up a weather balloon with a queen cage hanging below it. I know I've spoken on the show about that. It was attached to a fishing pole in the hands of Charlie Ilsley. <laughs> and we did lure some drones. And the coolest thing was David Tarpey was there for that meeting and he was guiding us on where we should be fishing for the Jones. That was neat. So I highly encourage you to give the episode a listen, as it was really cool what Julia did. And my twin, who I'm hoping is hearing this, has a drone, came to my house one time with it. I asked him to fly over the house and the property, and he did make recordings of what he was shooting. And what was cool is when he was up so high above the house, there were bees flying past. Now what I recall is at the time we had some wet honey supers out and the bees were just going gaga, but it was still cool to see them up so high in the sky. During the day that he was there, I walked out to the hives and he was flying around and I asked him to do some flybys of the hives so I'd have some footage and of me standing next to the hives. It's a really cool idea except for the fact that I forgot to hit record <laughs> on his little dashboard. He did get some cool still pictures though of my hives and honestly it was the neatest experience. I was so excited to get some video, I mowed the grass so it all looked good, I had the hives all cleaned up and everything, but eh, so it goes. So I'll have to see if he can come back this summer when things are buzzing along. Or better yet, we have to get him his own hive and he could be flying around that this year. So this one is for him as much as anything, because I'm sure he's going to love this idea. 
If you do not get a chance to go listen to that podcast episode, I would recommend at least that you consider visiting Julia's website dedicated to how to fly a drone to find drones. It shows even more of the experience and it's really well produced. Julia's website dedicated to the how-to is mapmydca.com. I have to warn you though, you could probably get lost in that website, so make sure you have some time before you go over there. I'll have a link in the show notes to mapmydca.com, to Beekeeper Confidential podcast, and to the episode for Julia Mahood that Mandy Shaw did. Thanks, Mandy, for that. And also thanks to Justin for the recommendation. Appreciate that. It was a good one. Roundtable number three. It's been a while since we've done a term. And in the drone theme that we have apparently going on this episode, the word of this episode is culling. We talk about culling all the time. And the question is, is there more to the term than simply removing something? And it turns out there is. Let's start with a definition. In biology, culling is the process of segregating organisms from a group according to desired or undesired characteristics. In animal breeding, it is the process of removing or segregating animals from a breeding stock based on a specific trait. This is done to exaggerate desirable characteristics or to remove undesirable characteristics by altering the genetic diversity of the population. For livestock, and wildlife, culling often refers to the act of killing removed animals. And while we're working with bees, and sometimes we do infer that they are livestock, to me the depth of this meaning is more about the first sentence, especially as it relates to comb culling. If we strictly keep an action to removal of comb with no life in it, is it culling? The answer in the definition still holds up. The process of segregating organisms from a group according to the desired or undesired characteristics. It does not necessarily have to involve the direct involvement of livestock, but in fairness it usually does. So let me make sure everybody's clear on that because we've been on drones and I'm about to go there, but this is just literally I'm getting rid of undesirable comb. That's what I'm talking about. No brood, no anything. Now if I go the other way, in another beekeeping example, we do cull drones. Culling drones, if we can infer that our bees are under our care, could be considered livestock, and we are culling said bees, which results in a specific thing being moved. But the question is, is this culling? Or is it just drone brood removal? Is the term culling right? That's kind of where I am right now. Culling stems from the word cull, which according to Merriam-Webster means to select from a group. Okay, we've done that. Or choose. We've done that. Merriam-Webster also gives an example that states, quote, to reduce or control the size of something such as a herd, meaning bees, control the size of bees by removal 
as by hunting or slaughtering, in our case we're just literally taking them out, of especially weak or sick individuals, end quote. Where do we stand on this? I don't know that that gave us an answer. There's one last tidbit to call out when looking at the formal definition, and it's the aspect of association of removing weak or sick individuals. It's kind of funny that when we call drones, we're doing it to remove mites. But we are, if you think about it and take the leap, calling drones who have been impacted by mites and therefore are likely weak and sick individuals. So maybe the definition fits. I'm just kind of searching for drone culling. Is it the right word or should it be referred to as drone removal? Maybe I should just stick to the term is culling and not overthink this. There's a link to the definition of cull in the show notes. Roundtable number four, honey is sugar, part two. You know, I had a sneaking suspicion that I would raise the ire of some when I prepared the FDA piece in episode number 167. In topic number one of that episode, I made the declaration that honey is not sugar. Funny thing is, I want you to consider me as the messenger. And for brevity's purpose, when I was doing that, I did not go down the path of honey versus sugar at the broader context. So I will stick to the assertion for a moment that honey is not sugar. Yet, honey is molecularly so similar to sugar to be sugar. I said in the topic that honey has fructose, glucose, and sucrose. Technically, honey is around 40% fructose, 30% glucose, 10% sucrose, and 20% other things. Now, if you look at that broadly, you know what that is? It is scientifically parallel to the composition of sugar. For those that will listen to that segment and hear the little voice telling them Kevin got it wrong, do this for me. Please tell your little voice that it's okay. (laughs) I know. I went into that feature with a viewpoint of purity and, this is important, the context of the FDA food labeling problem being discussed. In that context, I hope we all agreed that pure honey does not have any additives, hence the title of the feature added sugars. I recall sitting in a spirited conversation once about sugar and honey at the molecular level with Charlie Ilsley and some others. Charlie is an engineer and a chemist and can converse all day long with the best of them on this, and I enjoyed being a spectator in that debate. My recollection is at the end of that discussion, the participants agreed to believe that honey was similar but different. So hear this. And this is not from the context of the FDA labeling discussion from 167. It's in the here and now, and we can move past that discussion. From a layman's point of view, honey is pretty much a sugar base with constituent add-ons. Where it differs chemically, and no, I do not play a molecular scientist on TV, is with the source materials and enzymes that bees add in the changeover that occurs from the nectar base to the final honey form. 
amino acids, sugar decomposition constituents, proteins, vitamins, minerals, and other odds and ends means that how honey forms in its final state is fundamentally different than sugar, but its major parts, as we just said before, are fructose, glucose, and sucrose, which at its core is so close to table sugar that they're synonymous. In the end, I was pointing out all the idiosyncrasies and collisions with defending pure honey is honey without another form of sugar being added when it comes to food labeling. Honey to sugar is so close that it's a dead heat. And sugar is widely reported to be 50% fructose, 50% glucose. And in contrast, high fructose corn syrup is 55% fructose and 42% glucose. No one would say that honey is the same as, say, a potato. But take honey, table sugar, agave, corn syrup, and like products. Ask anyone and they would all broadly classify them as sugars, and so would nutritionists, researchers, scientists, and even probably beekeepers. I think this topic is one of those no-win situations, and I'll give you a snarky final comment because I'm the host and can take that liberty. Honey is not sugar. Why do I really think this? Because if I put honey in my coffee, it tastes like coffee with honey in it. It's not the same taste as if I put cane sugar or Splenda in it. I do not in my real world view the world of sweeteners by their molecular composition. And that makes life a little easier for me to find a piece in this topic. Yeah, it's not really snarky. It's just a different way to twist the lemon, I guess. So there you have it. Pure honey is not sugar, but honey is sugar. I'm so glad I could clear that up for you. Roundtable number five, this one's called Dead Cat. I have to start with an apology of sorts. This has nothing to do with beekeeping. However, as a lover of insects, you're going to appreciate the ingenuity of nature, and I have a fascination with material science as it relates to nature. This is another example of that angle creeping into the show. Scientists have discovered that the thoracic scales of a moth acts as a stealth coating against bat biosonar. This resonates for me as the article about it, published in the Royal Society Journal, talks about how the adaptation mimics acoustic camouflage. And it's a prime example of predator-prey sensory co-evolution. Of course, we all know that bats work by bouncing sound waves in a sort of sonar approach. But I had to geek out on this, as a close-up of the moth's biology looks like soundproof muffs that we put over microphones to protect them from wind noise. Those muff things, which you sometimes see in a filmmaker's documentary if you're paying attention to anything being filmed in the outdoors, are big and fluffy and poofy, downy, feathered-like substances and what they do is deflect any wind from getting to the diaphragm of the microphone and hopefully they'll eliminate the awful sound of wind noise in recordings. The term for that thing in the film industry somehow became to known as a dead cat. 
Like Velcro and any other material science that emulates animal and insect biologies, I always find these things, the discoveries, cool. And it makes me wonder if plumose hairs, which on the honeybee were primarily designed to be able to trap and collect pollen and other things, I'm guessing, also play some sort of sound role. That's an interesting question. Since it's not really anything to do with bees, I'll move along. Just know that there's a link in the show notes about it, and I got to talk about dead cat, so everybody wins. Round table number six, this one's Busy Bee Feeder. It's a quick word about a new product in the marketplace. Listener Mark Olivo sent me some information about a device being offered on his website, the Northeast Beekeeping Supply. Mark finds himself in Connecticut. Mark's a longtime listener of the show and is aware that I'm a gadget guy, so he sent some information about a feeder he developed because he didn't like the feeders on the marketplace. Why didn't he like the feeders available? It's for the same reason everyone doesn't like the feeders that are available on the marketplace. Bees end up drowning in many of the feeders. The entrance feeders are awful, meaning the front entrance like Boardman, so they don't work. Internal feeders require you to open the hive. Most of the feeders are unitaskers. They're just designed for liquids. And we have other feeding needs, dry pollen, sugars, things like that. So what Mark did was spend three years engineering and designing a feeder that looks like it's really well thought out and has multiple features that should make it more successful than the previous designs in the marketplace. The feeder features a tapered floor that results in the liquid gathering in the center for the bees to take it. It's easy to fill. The fill chamber has tight tolerances which negate the bees from drowning. It provides separate chamber for the feeding of pollen, pollen substitutes, or granulated sugar. It provides all-season ventilation, ensures you don't trap unwanted moisture and heat. It has a front entrance for the bees. And well, you know, I could just keep going on on the features. There's areas for sensors, there's a queen cage built in, and there's more. But I think the better thing to do is provide you a link and ask you to go take a look at it. You can do that at the busybeefarms.com website. That's busy, B-I-Z-Z-Y, B, farms, all one word, dot com. The feeder costs $50. There's an 8-frame and a 10-frame version available. It says on the website you can apply for a coupon code if you have one. And that lets me spend a moment talking about a place where you might find one. Kirsten Trainer, once the editor of American Bee Journal, has recently started a new magazine called One Million Blossoms. I saw the first version just recently, and it's stunning. It's just the most beautiful magazine I think I've ever seen. There's a lot of familiar authors in the inaugural issue, and again, it looks like it's just an incredible effort. Tying this to the Busy Bee Feeder, there's a coupon code in the One Million Blossoms issue so you can accomplish two feats at once. Check out the magazine and score a discount on one of the feeders. If it needs to be said, this was not a sponsorship, as I do not do that for this show. I looked at what Mark is offering, and I think it looks great, and I wish him a lot of luck with it. I literally, this afternoon, just stacked about six or seven Man League feeders that I have in the garage already. 
and I'm really not in the market for one at this time, but I'm looking forward to seeing what this looks like in person at a show or getting to preview it somewhere along the line. I could tell though by looking at the CAD drawings that are available on the website that it already addresses a lot of the shortcomings of the ones that I have, but alas I only have so much budget to invest. And you just heard me say I spent a lot of money on foundation and I'm about to tell you about something else, a sizable purchase that I made. So right now I'm a bit off the market for buying some things. So to learn more about Mark's story and to see more about the feeder itself, check out the Busy Bee Farms feeder through their website. And of course, I'll have a link in the show notes. Thanks, Mark, for sharing that and good luck with it. Roundtable number seven, Mead Made Right. I'm not sure why I didn't pick up on this sooner. I remember visiting Sergio Mutella recently. Not recently, I think it was last summer. <laughs> uh, last time I talked to him in person. And he told me about this, but out of sight, out of mind. And it just dawned on me to go look this up. If you go to meadmaderight.com, you'll find a podcast all about making mead. What Sergio does there, I think, is the freemium model. If you listen to the latest episode, you can get the information. And if you want to go back to listen to the back catalog, you can subscribe. So what do you talk about on a mead podcast? Making mead. And if that interests you, Sergio's the guy. If you don't know who Sergio is, you need to learn because when it comes to making mead, his stuff is the best. And he's got the awards in national arenas to prove it. And he's a Jersey guy. Did we mention that? So the way Sergio does this is he takes requests for different mead recipes from his audience. And then he picks them up and he breaks them down for you on how to make them. And you could follow along on his episode where he goes through it step by step. I've listened to a couple of his shows and they're outstanding. You have to be a mead maker to appreciate it. So forgive me for that candor. But, you know, if you're looking for something about beekeeping, you're not going to find it there. Although Sergio's a beekeeper and he's got things going on, uh, this is about mead. But if you want to make mead, it's the place to be. So I had to give Sergio a shout out on this. MeadMadeRight.com. Go check it out. And every once in a while, he gets behind on creating episodes. He's like a one-armed paper hanger. He's so busy. But uh, when he gets through, I promise you it'll be worth it. So give it a listen. Roundtable number eight. I'm at the bottom of the pile. I call this one without extreme prejudice. You know, my template only has eight roundtable entries. I think this is the first time I've ever used them all. What am I going to talk about? The Terminator MK350. I've been lusting after a pro-style oxalic acid vaporizer. I have one of the wands. I've used it a couple times. It's fine, but for somebody who doesn't have a lot of time, it's the anti-time device. Because it takes a certain amount of time for it to heat up and a certain amount of time for it to cool down. And even though I built special bottom boards to use the wand, it's just taking too long. And I've been lusting after buying a device, which I won't mention the name, but everybody knows. But they're $500 plus, and I'm 
not cheap, but I'm not, I'm thrifty. That's a good way to put it. So I bought this device and to me it's a good compromise. What I've seen on PSource and some of the other forums is people are making their own oxalic acid vaporizers. These are the kind that have the little puck that you put in and you turn it over and it heats it automatically through a band and it shoots out of this little pipette that comes out the front of the device and behind it it has a pistol grip with a temperature sensor box that has all the electronics. I saw someone who made one of these at a beekeeping meeting up at Northeast last year. I shot a short video of it. They're really cool but I don't have the time or inclination to build one and I've seen some for sale, these hobby style ones. I don't think this is for me. I would have actually gone the other way and bought the super expensive one. But here I found this one. It's called the Terminator MK350 and I'm going to give it a try. It comes with a year warranty. It looks the same as the super expensive one, but it's at a reasonable price. Reasonable for what they cost and the amount of engineering in it. So this one's available at exoticvapor.com and the vaporizer when you see the videos does exactly the same as some of the other ones which is you program it once it gets to temperature you flip it over and put the puck in it drops the oxalic acid crystals in it sublimates them right away and it shoots them out of the little hole in the front of the wand I've seen beekeepers shoot these through the front entrance and they sublimate that way and I've seen beekeepers who've gone and drilled I think it's a quarter inch hole in the back of their boxes and they just stick it in the hole and they do it that way from the back. I think it's a neat device. I'm willing to try it and honestly with the possibility that Apovar is going to become ineffective I think oxalic acid does fill a space. Now there's been a lot of discussion in back channels that I know of that says you got to do it when they're broodless, that's the most effective and so on and so forth which means you do it early in the season and you do it late in the season and maybe you do it when you do a brood break during the summertime. But I've also heard other schools of thought where oxalic acid vaporization is done when they're in full brood and you're killing the bees that are phoretic and if the bees sorry mm, you're killing the varroa that's phoretic meaning on the bees and if you do that enough you're preventing them from going into the cells and the ones that are merging you're getting those and yeah I think we've talked about that enough so I ordered this device I'm waiting for it to come I will try it out and see how it works out hopefully it was not an errant purchase that uh, is not going to pay off and require me to go buy the super expensive one in the end. Time will tell what that risk means, but I'm willing to give it a try and we'll see whether it works and of course I'll be reporting back on that. The one thing that I find wholly amusing is on the side of it it says terminates terminate mites with extreme prejudice. That's literally printed on the label. I kind of found that funny. I'll have a link in the show note, oxalicvapor.com for the MK350 Terminator oxalic acid vaporizer. If you want to see what it looks like 
and they're having a spring prep sale right now 195 dollars the thing is usually north of 200 and something so if you want to get in on that you can go check that out and again i don't take sponsorships for the program so just know that this is what i was looking at and found it and made the purchase and i'll let you know how i make out with it that's it i have cleaned the desk off and in record time sometimes these episodes go a lot longer than this i must have been cruising through today i did make one other purchase and i should bring that through in an upcoming episode I have sitting to the left of me something that I mentioned. It's a Nyko kit. What I'm doing is making a reference article about it. I'm going through and doing a lot of homework on the premise of the Genter kit and the Nyko just to get Zen with it. How they work, what the parts do, the way the pieces work, the way to set it up. And I'm writing my own guide. I think somewhere down the road I will be able to do pretty detailed presentation better than anything that I found out there while I'm trying to do the research for this the websites where they sell these things are awful and there's a couple people who have written guides but they're not really easy to follow and maybe mine won't be easy but I'm hoping it will be <laughs> it'll be easy for me because I wrote it for me um, so I know how to use it this summer when the time comes that I want to raise Queens um, not a cheap tool also, but I don't know, I find something appealing about this. Uh, I was talking to Bob Kloss the other day when I was at his house, and we talked about doing queen rearing again, and for sure I, I want to come back to, we did try this uh, Nico cage, and it worked out okay, and I want to learn more about it, and I actually bought my own to try it, so... Uh, closing comments, I have to wish my lovely Sharon a happy 24th birthday. She's not really 24, but 24 seems like a good number to stay with as we grow older. <laughs> and, if truth be told, there's something very interesting about that particular day, her 24th birthday, is she got a special wish that year. It turns out that our first date as a couple was on that day. I remember how nervous we were when we shared our first date together 31 years ago today. What did we do? We went to the Station Break restaurant to see a band called the Shotguns Play. It was a rescue squad kind of thing with our rescue squad acquaintances. And one of the lead singers of the Shotguns was a rescue squad person and we all met with mutual friends in this place, it's right off of Route 78 near Clinton. It's called the Clinton Station Diner, if I'm right. It has a train car sitting alongside of it. I remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah, 31 years ago today, I started my lovely journey with my wife. Haven't been happier. Happy birthday, sweetie. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone, and be well.